Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 129. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 36 through 39 and follow with some thoughts about non-zombies and the apocalypse. If Yechezkel was in full-on warning mode in the last episode, he is shifting gears in chapter 36 where he is all about consolation. Or to be more precise, all about karma. Quote, Behold, I declare my blazing wrath, because you have suffered the taunting of the nations, thus said the Lord God. I hereby swear that the nations which surround you shall in their turn suffer disgrace. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall yield your produce and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for their return is near. For I will care for you, I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. But Jehezkel is quick to remind the people that God is not going to redeem the people because they've been so wonderful and nice, just the opposite. The reason why all this ruin came down on their heads was because they were terrible people. But God is acting for different reasons. Quote, Not for your sake will I act, O house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you have caused to be profaned among the nations to which you have come. So, in a sense, the people will be the unexpected beneficiaries of God's narcissistic streak. And in so doing, quote, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your fetishes, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit into you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. These images of purification and restoration are but prologue to the big show, chapter 37, Yechezkel's true claim to fame, the vision of the dry bones where Yechezkel finds himself in a valley filled with bones bleached white in the sun. And God asks him, oh mortal, can these bones live again? Well, you know the answer to that one. And when Yechezkel prophesizes over them as he is bidden, the bones begin to quiver and shake and sinews and flesh appear on them and skin binds them together. And then when infused with the spirit and breath of God, a multitude rises to stand on their feet because God is going to liberate the Jews from Babylonian exile with a zombie army who will march on the palace and eat the brains of their uncircumcised overlords. Okay, as cool as that could have been, the dry bones coming to life is actually another parable of the resurrection of the dying spirit of the Jewish people. Got it? Quote, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are doomed. Prophecy therefore and say to them, thus said the Lord, I am going to open your graves and lift you out of the graves of my people and bring you to the land of Israel, yada, yada, yada. So there's no zombie army marching anywhere, but the people will, you know, eventually march back to Israel as God promised. And to further drive home the point of the parable, God tells Yechezkel to take a stick and write of Judah on one, and on another stick of Joseph and the house of Israel, and then bind the two sticks together. Get it? They'll become one nation. And if this episode wasn't CGI heavy or trippy enough with the zombie uprising, I mean, the vision of the dry bones, whatever, chapter 38 introduces Yechezkel's prophecy about Gog of the land of Magog. Gog is the chief prince and general, and though God will kick his ass in the present, in the future, Gog will lead a massive army against Israel. Quote, you will advance upon my people Israel like a cloud covering the earth. This shall happen on that distant day. Now the phrase, that distant day, acharit hayamim, 
has an additional meaning, which I'll explore in the next segment. And so on that distant day, the war will be apocalyptic, but God will righteously smack Gog down. Quote, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that move on the ground, and every human being on earth shall quake before me. Mountains shall be overthrown, cliffs shall topple, and every wall shall crumble to the ground. Yechezkel's prophecy continues in chapter 39. Gog will invade Israel from the north. The battle will be fierce and devastating, and God will destroy Israel's enemies. The death toll will be so high that it will take the Jews seven months to bury all the dead. But in the meantime, the birds will have a veritable feast. But fear not, people, quote, when I have brought them back from among the peoples and gathered them out of the lands of their enemies and have manifested my holiness through them in the sight of many nations, they shall know that I am the Lord their God. When having exiled them among the nations, I gather them back into their land and leave none of them behind. I will never again hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And on that upbeat note, here endeth the lesson. We were this close. I'm holding my fingers about an inch apart, so you can imagine that close, that close to having an episode about the zombie apocalypse. But I think that uh, what Yechezka was describing was not technically a zombie. I mean, yes, the bones were those of the dead and they were under scattered in some nameless valley, but the dead did rise. Because if we look to classic zombie canon, specifically the first work of fiction to deal with zombies, that's H.P. Lovecraft's 1921 short story, Herbert West, Reanimator, we'll find that the experiments conducted by the protagonist of that story to reanimate corpses produced a violent, animalistic creature with a hunger for human flesh. And if you fast forward about 50 years, you get George Romero's 1968 classic, Night of the Living Dead. That was the first film to really explore the zombie uprising, the zombie genre. And he posited that zombies kind of spontaneously reanimated for some unknown reason. You know, the characters in the film try to figure it out. They never really get to any kind of consensus. The dead just simply began to rise from their graves. They have no memory of their previous lives, nor do they have full cognitive function. They can't really talk. They kind of like, they moan a lot. Uh, They walk, but in a slow shamble, they use their hands to do basic functions like grabbing and hitting, and they also bite. And... Most importantly, they're driven by an insatiable need to eat human flesh. Since 1968, there have been countless other attempts or forays into the genre, and they have uh, medicalized zombiehood, describing it kind of in 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 like a terms of an epidemic or an outbreak. Max Brooks did this in his 2006 epic World War Z. For Brooks, the zombies still shuffle and they groan and they want to eat flesh, And if they bite you, you'll turn. But his story also explores how the outbreak, really any outbreak, has the potential to redefine international relations, bring about the collapse of societies, change the nature of warfare, and how all of that impacts the environment. The dead that rise in Babylonia are probably not cognitively impaired as they are infused with the divine spirit, just like the man in the creation story of Genesis 2. And when they stand on their feet, They do give the impression of, you know, shuffling around a little bit, but they're probably shuffling westward toward the promised land. And most importantly, they don't eat Yechezkel right away. So I guess, you know, that's a good sign. The dingo took my baby! 
Okay, that that's like from a totally different and unrelated movie. And anyway, it's the whole you know zombie thing. It's really a parable, so we can all just settle down. The only apocalypse that involves Yehezkel involves Gog of Magog, which, like the zombie stuff, started out as, I guess, a parable, but has since taken on a life of its own. And it all begins, I guess, with that phrase, Acharit Hayamim, which has also been rendered as the end of days, which folks have taken to mean in the days preceding the apocalypse and the arrival of the Messiah. And Gog from Magog over the centuries became corrupted and referred to as Gog and Magog. And I guess the first instance we find of that is in the 2nd century BCE book of the Sibylline Oracles, which was probably authored by uh, Hellenized Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. But the real star turn, where Gog and Magog kind of get launched into the popular imagination, happened in the 1st century CE when they appear as a pair in chapter 20 of the book of Revelations. Quote, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. Oh, damn! They also feature in 2nd century CE Midrash, in the period after the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, when the rabbis moved away from a flesh-and-bone king messiah to a supernatural figure who would defeat Israel's enemies, most notably Gog and Magog. But... Where their kingdoms were located was kind of unknown or undefined. A little bit earlier than that, the first century CE uh, Jewish historian Josephus identified Gog and Magog's people as the Scythians who were horse-riding barbarians from the Black Sea region. So we're starting to sort of connect you know, Gog and Magog with Russia. Gog and Magog feature in stories about Alexander the Great, who locked them up behind iron gates in the Caucasus Mountains. They feature in the Quran as Yajuj and Majuj, who were also suppressed by a legendary figure supposedly derived from Alexander the Great. But where it really gets interesting is in the modern period, specifically the 19th century when some Hasidic rabbis begin to identify Gog and Magog, you know, with modern events and figures. At the first instance is where they sort of talk about Napoleon's invasion of Russia in these terms, but Russia continues to persist in these stories, especially since Yechezkel described Gog as the chief prince of Meshech, Rosh Meshech, which sounds like Russia Moskva if you say it, you know, enough times with some marbles in your mouth. And since the turn of the millennium, you know, folks have also begun to extend the connection between Gog and Magog with Russia and her alliances with Muslim countries, especially Iran and Syria, as well as the rise and prominence of Israel in the Middle East, as well as repeated American invasions in the region. Apparently, and there are numerous mainstream outlets that confirm this story, including Foreign Policy, Mother Jones, and The Atlantic. In the prelude to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, President George W. Bush allegedly told French President Jacques Chirac, quote, Gog and Magog are at work in the Middle East. This confrontation is willed by God, who wants us to use this conflict to erase his people's enemies before a new age begins. What is your damage, Heather? As we discussed in the last episode, the prophet has many roles, but they really kind of boil down to three. He warns the people of impending doom, he rages against their bad behavior, he also consoles them when they are beaten down and demoralized. But the one thing the prophet does not do is encourage anyone to invade other countries, destabilize whole regions, expend blood and treasure over an adventure that historians will eventually acknowledge overextended and bankrupted the world's sole stabilizing power. He doesn't imply that. He doesn't condone that. 
If W had bothered to ask, Yechezkel would have set him straight. God wants us to behave and make amends, not make war. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 130 when we continue in the book of Ezekiel with chapters 40 through 43.